Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the You Are Not Too Busy podcast. In case you forgot or you had no idea in the first place, I'm Noam Raider. I'm your host, and I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you for coming on for another week. Today's episode is probably one of my favorites. It is so educational. If you are into nutrition and health and wellness, lifestyle medicine, or if you're in the medical field at large and you want to just learn more about this really important topic, you are going to love today's episode. I had previously read the book authored by today's guest, and I was a little bit starstruck when recording this. You guys will get to it soon, okay? Anyways, first let's do our weekly catch-up. So today is January 21st. And in exactly nine-ish days, I'm going to be submitting my residency applications, which is so beyond me. I feel like the first day of med school was like three months ago, and I blinked and woke up almost a doctor. So excited, so grateful, but honestly also nervous. Nervous, a little doubtful. The imposter syndrome has been so real. And I'm bringing this up because I think It's important to not just show only the amazing, glorious moments, not just show me, fingers crossed, opening my letter and matching to one of my top residency choices. It's important to also show the process that you don't wake up every single morning confident. Sometimes you doubt yourself. Sometimes you're just nervous and that's okay too. I'm all about shedding light to both sides of every situation. Both things can be true. You can be excited and you can be doubtful. Duality is okay. So what I also wanted to talk about today was procrastination. So these residency applications, they opened up in October and I had told myself, Noam, you're gonna start when they open, you're gonna get this done in advance so that you don't have to stress about it. You can take your time tying up the details, really making it something that you're proud of. And I told myself this, but like, I didn't know if I really believed myself. I was doubtful. I procrastinated about things in the past. um, And I just wasn't sure if I'd actually reached the school, but In order to motivate myself, even though the deadline was end of January, January 30th, I told myself the deadline was January 21st, and like that was just the deadline in my mind. And this is something that I've done with a lot of aspects of my life recently, is just really set my own deadlines for things. And it's something that I've really found the value in now that I'm more so like out of the undergrad phase of school, no one's really on top of my studying in the same way. And also with anything on social media, no one's really on top of me for that either. I really had to motivate myself and set my own deadlines and reach those. And a conversation that I was having with my partner last night about procrastination and deadlines made me realize that the most critical thing, or at least from my experience, in order to beat procrastination is actually respecting and valuing the timelines that you set for yourself. And I think that really does stem from self-confidence in a way to know that the deadline set by your professor or by your boss or by anyone else is just as firm, meaningful, and valued as deadlines that you set for yourself. So yes, technically, I don't need to upload my residency applications tonight, but I made that promise to myself and I'm going to keep it. And that really just ties into self-confidence overall of it. Really, it just is making promises to yourself and sticking to those promises. I know I've spoken about this on previous episodes, but I realized that that's really at the core of what's helped me beat procrastination over the years. So I urge you to try that. If you're writing your exam in a week, tell yourself you need to be ready in five days, right? And I'm not saying be super hard on yourself because things happen and take those extra two days if you have them. But if you really firmly believe that that five day deadline 
is the real deadline, you will be ready for that, right? You're going to respect it as much as you respect the deadline of your actual exam day. So that was just my two cents. I think beating procrastination has really helped me in so many aspects of life. I think someone who does work well under pressure, like I can definitely get things done if I have a short period of time. It does motivate me when I have firm, strict deadlines like from someone else. But I've noticed that when I do things, not from a sense of stress, not from a place of like desperation to just finish it. Like I'm so much more proud of my work at the end. I enjoy the process of it. So yeah, I'll stop rambling about this topic, but I'd love to hear any tips you guys have for procrastination as well. And feel free to leave them in the reviews for the podcast or DM me on Instagram, whatever works. But the other thing I wanted to chat about today is currently I'm on my psychiatry selective rotation, meaning it's kind of like an elective, like I chose to do this this type of psychiatry. I had to do some sort of psychiatry for these two weeks. And psychiatry is largely online still due to the pandemic. So I'm basically online every single day. I think I go in person like one day over this rotation. And I haven't been like full-time online in so long. Obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, when I was still in my first year of med school, we went completely online for like nine months. And I forgot how hard it is to stay motivated when working at home. I was so used to having to wake up early to be somewhere. And not having that structure has really gotten me to kind of reevaluate my morning routines and kind of piggybacking off what I just spoken about, but really like sticking to my own goals. So let's say when I started work in person at 9 a.m., if my alarm went off at 7, I got up at 7 because I knew that I had to do my morning routine, work out, whatever it was that morning, and then get to work on time. And yes, I still do have a start time for my Zoom clinics, but I definitely have more leeway, more flexibility in the mornings, and I could just wake up at 8.45 and be ready for 9 on Zoom, right? But I've really been staying diligent with myself and making myself still wake up at my like normal wake up time at like 7, 7.30 and get in my morning routine. And it's really been helping me keep up with structure. But it really just want, makes me want to give a shout out to anyone who's been working at home for the past year and a half, however long we've been in this pandemic. Oh, it's almost been two years. Wow. Wow. Crazy. Anyways, if you've been online this whole time, Seriously, big props to you because it can be so hard to keep motivated, especially during the winter months. I think I went like three days without leaving the house last week. Granted, it was like the big snowstorm in Toronto. And anyways, props to you. Stay motivated. Beat procrastination. That was just my little inner workings of my mind, my note to self. But let's get into the main part of today's episode and the part that I am so excited for. So today... I'm going to be talking to Dr. William Lee. Dr. William Lee is a physician, a scientist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Eat to Be Disease, The New Science of How Your Body Can Heal Itself. I read this book about maybe like a year or so ago and had kind of been rereading it now as I was excited to interview him. And truly, the research is so remarkable. I'm always so excited to hear from people who kind of speak about all of these health and wellness topics that we hear on social media, all these buzzwords, and really break down like which ones are true, which ones are not, and what's the science behind it. This conversation was so educational. I feel like I learned so much. Like throughout the episode, I like, I'm like, wait, 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 can you explain more about that? Like we totally went off topic because I got so into it. He is so incredibly knowledgeable, and I know you guys will love today's episode. 
His groundbreaking work has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments and impacts the care of over 70 diseases, including cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity. And you may have seen his TED Talk on YouTube called Can We Eat to Starve Cancer, which has gained over 7 million views. So without further ado, take out your notepads, get ready to learn. Let's welcome Dr. William Lee. All right. Hello, everyone. And please welcome Dr. William Lee to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Before we start, I just love to get in your words, just a brief introduction, what I like to call an elevator pitch. Who are you? What do we do? And what can we learn from you? Yeah, I'm Dr. William Lee. I'm an uh, internal medicine uh, physician. Uh, I am a vascular biologist, so I'm also a researcher uh, from the lab to the clinic. And I run a not-for-profit organization called the Angiogenesis Foundation. And from all of that, uh, I've also became an author. I wrote a New York Times bestseller called Eat to Beat Disease. uh, And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. I'm so excited to delve into all of that. But let's start from the beginning. A lot of my listeners are students and many in the medical world, medical students or in other healthcare practices. And I'd love to hear your journey um, from your medical education to residency and what brought you to be studying what you are today. Yeah, it's a long journey. Um, How do I begin? Uh, I would say that my, my journey to where I am today began before I went to medical school. Uh, so I grew up in a family where uh, my mother was an artist, a pianist. My father is a biomedical engineer. So I had the arts and the sciences, the creative and the logical side, kind of both of those engines firing away on all cylinders uh, throughout most of my life. And when I was in college, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, but I and I studied biochemistry, but I spent a lot of my time actually in the studio arts lab. And uh, so I've always sort of found that science is the way forward in terms of logic and um, rigor and progress. We can't solve everything with science. In fact, we often run into brick walls, uh, both as a clinician as well as a researcher. And that's really where it pays off to be creative. So you can sort of think about, well, how would I design an experiment or what study would I do? Or who do I need to contact to really uh, uh, get around this obstacle? And problem solving is sort of a really... um, something that I think uh, creativity is really important for. So something I was very interested in in college was uh, the the transition between the dark ages and a Renaissance. Uh, and I thought this obviously didn't happen overnight where people were in a black room and then somebody turned on the light and all of a sudden it was the golden age of science and arts and medicine. Um, but in fact, it was a, it was a, um, a journey, a, a progress a transition that took place over hundreds of years. But I was really fascinated because the idea is that we are all at any moment in time present at a juncture between the dark ages of the past and the golden age of the future. And at any given point in time, there's always new developments that's kind of changing and replacing the things that were before. So um, I found that really interesting. After college, before medical school, I took a gap year and I actually spent time in the Mediterranean, which, which is sort of the the beating heart of Western medicine, dating back to the Greeks and the Italians and the Romans. And so um, I spent time there. And what I was very interested in is this is the connection between food and health and uh, culture. And so I based myself in Northern Italy, traveled all around 
Um, I was also in Greece and I actually um, embedded myself in a monastery to really understand how people live a medieval lifestyle. And so all of those influences, the food, the culture, uh, the history, the science were things that I carried with me when I went to medical school. And, uh, you know, if your listeners are in medical school or finished medical school, everybody knows that there's sort of a, um, there's a folder material that we all have to imbibe. It's 4,000 years of Western medicine kind of compressed into four years. And we have to try to create a craft out of that. Then you have to learn the techniques. And so it's a lot of information to um, absorb, but I could never forget all those lessons that I learned that going back 3,000 years, um, people were actually thinking about their life and their culture and food as part of what was responsible for health. And so as I got into biomedicine and helped to, um, and created an organization called the Angiogenesis Foundation, um, that wound up really at the forefront of biotechnology. In fact, we've actually been driving the successful development of 41, soon to be 42 FDA approved treatments for cancer, diabetes, vision loss, the really exhilarating journey to think about how to take science through biotechnology, through the regulatory, through FDA, to make it available to, to patients. Um, but I realized uh, about 10 years ago that while that was an important endeavor, we were, we were missing a, a huge opportunity, which is to prevent disease in the first place before it would start. So um, what I realized is that the nutrition was an opportunity because you can't talk about uh, drugs when you're talking about prevention. You need to talk about something safer, more accessible. The problem was evidence. There's sort of been a paucity of evidence and the lack of really rigor in how to study food as medicine. So I sort of tore a page from my own playbook for drug development and realized that we could use the same models and the same systems for drug development. But instead of throwing a drug in, we could actually throw food in. And that's really uh, what brought me to working in food as medicine. And, and it's been a wonderful um, uh, development in my career. And the amazing thing is that we can actually see that many foods are actually as powerful uh, as medicines. That's so fascinating. I find it so interesting that you mentioned the intersection between art and science informing your career as I personally had a similar journey as well. And for a long time felt that I wouldn't fit into the medical world because I always had um, passion for creativity and such. But now being in medicine, I've really found how much that can benefit me and as well as seeing it in a lot of my mentors as well. So that's really cool to hear. And I always think about when people talk about food as medicine, um, there's this kind of back talk throughout the medical field, or maybe it's diminishing these days, but that it's not evidence-based and to go back to evidence-based medicine, but exactly like you're saying, it really has become evidence-based and we have the research to back it. And I'm so excited to delve more into that and more about your book. So what was the inspiration behind your book, Eat to Beat Disease? Was there any one moment or is it um, these formative experiences that you've already described? Well, what I, what I would tell you is that I would say the convergence of all of my experiences led me to uh, think about uh, how to communicate the information about food. Because I, as I mentioned to you, I've been involved with drug development for so many years. And here's the thing about developing important new medicines. So anybody who's in the medical world will know that the next generation or the next innovation uh, for uh, medical treatment 
is an important one. So we can actually have a treatment for Alzheimer's or better treatment for cancer or better treatment for uh, diabetes. I mean, those are things that we in medicine celebrate because we need better treatments. Um, but the but the thing about uh, uh, food is that, you know, I probably had a week worth of nutrition education in medical school. And I know that when I was in residency training, you know, we were always kind of dismissive of, of how to integrate nutrition into our patient care because we would just consult nutrition or consult dietetics. And we let somebody else come in who was trained in that stuff. And we thought we were, you know, sort of at a different elevated level to be able to deal with the, 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 the heavy lifting of, of disease treatment. You know, what I now know is that in fact, nutrition is such an important tool in the toolbox. And uh, as a quick uh, anecdote, you know, uh, I was a doctor at a VA hospital before, better for veterans. And these are some of my favorite patients. They were wonderful people. They always had interesting stories. And I love talking to my patients. I mean, that's one of the big major satisfactions that I, I have as a doctor. And uh, unfortunately, one of my, many of my patients um, were also in terrible shape. So they were overweight uh, or, or obese, and they had diabetes and cancer and lung disease and, and cardiovascular disease. And the um, crazy thing that I thought uh, as I was getting to know my patients is that these people, they were once in their 20s, the cut fit buff soldiers who couldn't even serve unless they were perfect physical specimens. And so I use that as sort of like a, as a prompt for myself to say, uh, what happened to these people? Like, what was it that changed throughout their life? And inevitably, as I interviewed my patients about that, I found it, it's really their lifestyle, you know, uh, over the course of their uh, adulthood, um, as they were aging, they just weren't taking good care of themselves. And a big part of that was, was diet. And so it, made me realize, you know, just how important it is for me to use my knowledge for, uh, in, in developing evidence. I mean, you can't develop any of these drugs that I've been involved with without real rigor, you know, absolute hardcore science. And what I did realize is that, you know, for nutrition, we got to go way beyond proteins and carbs and fats and uh, micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. We actually have to take it to another level. So when it comes to food and health, what I realize it's not just about the food. Everybody talks about superfoods and antioxidants or anti-inflammatory foods. It's not just about that. It's really about how our body responds to what we put inside it. And that's true if it's a food or a drug or a supplement, you know, um, and, and by understanding that, the body first, all of a sudden it brings food as medicine back to the realm of the physician. Yeah, that's so fascinating. It brings up a line I heard you speak about a lot, which was the common denominators of health. So when you speak about these veterans and you think back to yourself of these were the people, of course, who were fighting in wars, they were physically fit. I know that's a realization I've had as well, working with older patients in medicine and kind of wondering where along the line did kind of that misstep happen to lead them down this road. Um, so bringing up these common denominators of health, and I know you've spoken about it as well as the five defense systems for health. Can you chat a little bit more about that and briefly outline to the listeners what these defense mechanisms are? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so, I mean, as when I was training in medical school and even residency and even in my early days of practice, there was something that was always in the back of my head, which was... Um, trying to understand what the definition of health was, because 
going through my training, of course, I could define a disease. What's diabetes? What's hypertension? What's, uh, you know, what's a dementia? Like those were the diseases you could define. But health was this kind of ethereal, not very specific, kind of vague gray area. And in fact, you know, even myself, when somebody asked me once, uh, I remember I was in medical school or they asked me if I was healthy. And I said, of course I'm healthy. And they said, how do you know? And I said, because I'm not sick. Health is the absence of disease. And what I realized is that how, how I always felt that was a very frustrating answer because the absence of something does not define something. And you can't operationally do anything about something that is the absence of something else. And yet health is so important. So I wanted to basically sit, figure this out. And that's really part of the research I've done. Health is not just the absence of disease. It is the result of our body's own hardwired health defense systems that are actually formed in utero. So as we were developing for nine months in our mom's womb, literally those stem cells that formed our organs and our skeleton and our features uh, uh, actually also put in play uh, a kind of circuit board of physiological systems that are a health defense system. So I, I have been working on five of them. I call them the five legs of the stool of health. And they're pretty simple to understand and from my perspective, because I've been involved with drug development along each of these systems. So I know the science, I know the evidence, I know the rigor it takes. And I also know the biology. And as a physician, you know, uh, for, 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 you know, your listeners, you know, people who are in medicine, people who are in science, people who are supposed to understand this stuff. This actually brings this entire realm of understanding the body's health defense systems into a comfort zone. So you've heard about, you know, about the circulation. Well, how do blood vessels grow? That's called angiogenesis. So angiogenesis is the first health defense system that's hardwired, 60,000 miles worth of blood vessels, anatomically configured so that you bring oxygen and nutrients um, to every single cell and every single organ in the body. But when blood vessels are happy and are, are physiologically normal, the rest of our body is able to function normally. Second, stem cells. I talked about the in utero development of the person. <clears throat> when we are actually delivered, uh, you know, on our birthday, uh, you know, all those stem cells have, have gone and formed all the things they need to form, liver, heart, lung, kidneys, adrenal glands, so on and so forth. But there's overage, right? So we're, we have more stem cells during development than we need. So when we pop out of our mom's wombs, um, we've got uh, extra stem cells, on average, 750 million extra stem cells. Those all get packed up like in a suitcase into our bone marrow, where they actually are reservoir. Their bone marrow is a reservoir for stem cells. So as we develop, uh, go through life, those extra stem cells are called out um, to help repair us from the inside out. So what I learned, having been involved with regenerative therapy from a biotech perspective is that, you know, it's, we're not, it's not ready for prime time yet from a therapeutic perspective, but mother nature's beat us to it because uh, our body naturally calls up stem cells for regeneration. Our lungs regenerate, livers regenerate, hair regenerates, gut regenerates, pretty much everything regenerates slowly, even our heart and brain regenerates. Um, but foods can actually call out our stem cells even further. Number three, gut health, microbiome, a huge, powerful, barely understood health defense system. But what we do know about it is that a healthy gut ecosystem is like the Great Barrier Reef. It's this incredible diverse uh, ecosystem of organisms that actually keep uh, everything healthy in our body. 
everything from our metabolism to our inflammatory state to um, our ability to heal wounds to our hair texture to our skin um, uh, uh, readiness to um, our social and emotional state because our gut communicates with our brain kind of like text messages our bacteria text message our brain to release social hormones a huge defense system the fourth one is our dna much more than the genetic code antioxidants to prevent dna damage rebuilding dna and of course our telomeres and the epigenetic uh, uh, cascade and then finally our immune system i mean after the last two and a half years who doesn't know about the importance of immunity now when I was in medical school, I remember the immune system seemed impossibly complicated. And I will tell you, you know, many, many years later, I would, I still look at the immune system as, in, as, as impossibly complicated. And in fact, something that we don't know that much about, which brings us to this whole pandemic that we've been struggling with. Is, is it that we don't have enough immunity? Do we have too much immunity? You know, how do we get our immunity back under control? How does immunity and inflammation distinguish itself? Um, uh, is some of the uh, consequences of infection by the coronavirus, does that help us understand the, the long haulers of COVID? Does that help us understand some of the complications we see with Lyme disease or Epstein-Barr, mononucleosis? I mean, maybe, maybe there's some uh, silver lining uh, uh, out of all this tragedy that we've actually had, uh, you know, it's changed the world. Maybe now today we can actually sit back and ask, are there some common denominator features as well? So our a good functioning immune system is our fifth health defense system. So all of these systems, health defense systems, angiogenesis, stem cells, gut microbiome, DNA protection, and our immune system are influenced by the food that we eat. That is so fascinating. And on that question, are there any specific foods or lifestyle choices that we can make to activate each of these defense systems or any notable highlights that the listeners can start to implement in their life. Yeah, well, so here's the good news for everyone. Uh, you know, when I wrote my book, Eat to Beat Disease, I started to compile the foods that would be beneficial and would activate these health defense systems. And it turns out that in total, more than 200 different foods can actually light up our angiogenesis defenses and our stem cells and our gut and our immune system, et cetera. And that two, those 200 foods mean that eating to beat disease using food as medicine is a wonderful thing to lean into. We can love our food to love our health at the same time. It's kind of our my motto because many of these foods uh, are used in traditional recipes. They're the foods that you know you would recognize as something that uh, you enjoy actually eating. And so I have this, in my book, Eat to Beat Disease, I have these tables of, of foods. And what I tell people to do um, is uh, take a pencil or a, a marker, and go through these lists and just circle the foods that you already like. If you like raspberries, if you like red peppers, if you like mushrooms or whatever it is you like, circle them up. And almost everyone I've met could actually come up with, you know, 10 or more circled foods. And what I, and, and what I said is that these are the foods that you already love to eat. So guess what? You're already ahead of the game because the things that you like already activate your health defenses. And that makes people feel good about themselves because what my whole philosophy is, you don't have to cut things out of your life. What I want to focus on people's attention to is what can you add to your life to enrich your life that also tastes great. And so, you know, we can go through a big long list for each of these health defenses. And there are some foods that activate all of them, all the health defenses. 
But I, I try to tell people, don't get too stuck on the superfood that you should all eat all the time. Our body is designed for diversity and it wants to eat lots of things across different food groups. And, and you sort of want to, um, uh, so I say kind of lean into it by uh, 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 getting to know yourself and your own food preferences. And once you know what it is you like, that's healthy for you, build off of that. Yeah, I really love that perspective. I think often when um, I've even tried speaking to patients about their health and food choices, or I've seen physicians that I've worked with do so a lot of patients um, get really hesitant because it sounds so complicated to start healing yourself with food. It sounds like only eating quinoa and kale and all those superfoods. And those are great, but you're really breaking it down to health doesn't need to be difficult. It can just be kind of going back to the basics of eating more fruits and vegetables, eating the rainbow. And I really love that approach. I think it's going to make a really big difference in a lot of people's lives once they can realize that. And I know you mentioned that it's not about taking anything out of your diet, but in terms of lifestyle choices in general, is there anything that people should do um, or stop doing in terms of um, hindering these defense systems? Right. Well, so it's our body and these are hardwired systems, physiological systems. So what we put in our body can either uh, support and amplify the defenses, which is what you want to have. You want your, your shields up. So you're in the best possible position to combat, uh, you know, the harms that can come to your body or whatever we put in our body, you know, we can actually degrade uh, our health defenses and that makes us more vulnerable to disease. So it's, it's pretty much as simple as that. Um, you know, I give people an analogy. Uh, you know, if you, if you drive a car still using gasoline, you go to the tank, you get the choices of gas you can actually use or if you uh, are changing the oil you know, you can choose what kind of oil you want to put in. There's always the cheap stuff. There's always the crummy stuff that you can actually put in. And, you know, and if we're doing that, putting the crummy stuff in your car all the time, it's like loading our body with stuff that's not so good for it. It's okay. You get some elemental stuff, but honestly, it's not that good. Over time, there are consequences to be paid for each of these decisions. And by the same token, if we choose to eat better foods, <clears throat> our body will reward us by actually have stronger health defenses over time. So what are some of the things, you know, I, I always talk about the good things to add, but let's talk about a few things that, that, that are clear that are not good for our health defenses. So we'll start with um, added sugar. So, you know, regular sugar, a little bit of sugar, sugar from fruits, sugar from vegetables, no problem. Most people's bodies can handle a little bit of natural sugar. Um, and with the whole food, you wind up getting the fiber. You wind up getting all kinds of other bioactives and polyphenols um, that's found in it as well. But uh, but if you take a look at added sugar, you know, the stuff they put into a soda, uh, The if you take a look at the, um, uh, uh, you know, lots of confections, cakes and cookies and all kinds of those kinds of snacks, ultra processed snacks, they're loaded with sugar. That, that over time will overwhelm the body's health defenses, including our gut microbiome. Um, another thing that actually is deleterious would be processed meats and red meats. So we know that processed meats actually consider a carcinogen by the World Health Organization. Um, uh, and red meat actually is a burden to our system. Not only does it contain saturated fat, but an excess of red meat, which really we started to consume in North America, excess red meat after the 1950s. It was a sign of prosperity, you know, but people sort of ate beans before 
you know, because because the, the economy was different, society was different. It was a mark of prosperity that we could actually traffic in red meat and, and eat as much as we want, actually want. And so that's really an overload of our system uh, as well. And ultra processed foods, of course, have been shown to actually be uh, deleterious to our gut microbiome. And so a lot of the stuff, as you might expect, that are not good for us, we swallow it. Um, not only might we absorb chemicals and things that we don't want, unwanted chemicals, synthetic chemicals into our bloodstream through our GI tract, but actually all that other stuff, that other chemical residue flushes right down to our gut microbiome and our colon. And because that gut microbiome, the 39 trillion bacteria that live in our, in our gut, actually are very sensitive to chemicals that we put in there. If we feed them the right things, they're happy and they, they pay us back by helping our metabolism and other key functions. But if we feed them the wrong things and they get sick, think about the Great Barrier Reef that's been bleached. You remove the fish, the corals, you know, the, the anemones, the starfish. Now you've got a really sickly system and that system then degrades. And so therefore our health degrades as well. So I would say those are some of the clear-cut things that we should sort of stay away from extra sugar, excess sugar, um, and also artificial sweeteners, by the way, which are also terrible for our gut microbiome. Red meats, processed meats, ultra-processed foods. Those are sort of a, that's kind of a short list. And, and I'm not telling anybody anything new. I'm just saying that they actually um, degrade our body's five health defense systems. And by the same token, you can take a look at on the other side of what are the foods that actually uh, help our uh, health defenses flourish, right? If you're going to grow a garden, you want the flowers to bloom. You want the leaves to be bright and beautiful. You want to be able to have a garden that works together in harmony that people will really appreciate. And you know, a garden that's not that healthy, it's pretty easy to see. It's not that, not that doing that well. A beautiful garden, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, I actually do, uh, you know, I like gardening. And so I spend a lot of time with the flower garden uh, every summer. And, and it's a great source of pride when you actually get there and here's the thing, there are some broad categories, broad patterns of eating that can help our five, our five health defense systems flourish like a beautiful garden. I will tell you what they are. Plant-based foods. Okay, this is no surprise. Fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts and seeds, uh, tree nuts. Those are, those are things that actually help our health defenses thrive. Healthy oils like olive oil, those actually help our body thrive as well. We know, even know some of the many of the chemicals, natural chemicals that are actually uh, present in their seafood. Um, you don't have to be a vegan to be healthy. Seafood is also a healthy uh, uh, choice, uh, mostly because of the healthy omega-3 fatty acids. But a newer area of research shows there's peptides found in the flesh of, uh, of oysters and certain kinds of seafish that are also biologically active and beneficial. Uh, and, um, and some beverages, coffee and tea, are all really, really healthy. Uh, and so, you know, I would say that's the category. Those are the categories of the healthy foods that actually stimulate and activate and preserve and support our health defense systems. That was such a great summary and always very happy to hear that I can consider coffee a health food. Definitely motivates me through a lot of school. So that's great. You, you know um, what, by the way, I, 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 I drank so much coffee in medical school just to, you know, just to get through the day. But I, I will confess that my coffee habit actually started when I was doing my gap year and I was in Italy uh, where, you know, like I drank a little bit of coffee in college, but it wasn't something I did a lot of. 
Uh, but in Italy, it's like really part of the culture. It's part of the life. And, you know, having a cup of espresso uh, to wake up in the morning was quite unlike anything I had done before. You get this gigantic jolt uh, of, uh, of strong coffee. But, you know, it's actually something I can have continued to do to this day. So what's in coffee? Lots of bioactives. But one of the best studied is something called chlorogenic acid. Chlorogenic acid activates all five of the health defense systems. So coffee is one of these, you know, kind of activates everything good for your health in almost every single way. That's black coffee. If you add sugar, artificial creamers and other kinds of flavorings, you kind of change the, you change the nature of what you're having. The coffee itself is still good, but now you've added other maybe things to it that are maybe not so great for you. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, cost benefit ratio. Uh, so what kind of coffee is best, right? So turns out that uh, if you use chlorogenic acid as the marker for a strong, a good, beneficial, healthy coffee, it turns out that organic coffees always have more chlorogenic acid than conventionally grown coffees. Now, why would that be? You know, um, now most people talk about organic as not being sprayed with pesticides, which is true. Um, but, it, but here's something that's really interesting. A conventionally grown coffee plant has pesticides sprayed on it, so it decreases the bugs, the insects nibbling, the pests nibbling on the stems and the leaves. Well, guess what? In an organic grown coffee plant, the uh, nibbles that the pests actually do on the plant are viewed by the plant as a wound, an injury, and the wound healing response that the plant actually has to those little nibbles by the pests and the leaves and the stems, the wound healing response is to generate and pump out a lot of chlorogenic acid, which gets stored into the bean. And so that's one of the reasons why organic is good. It's it's not only that organic has less pesticides, you get more of the bioactives as well. So um, just a little, little footnote for your coffee fetish. That is so interesting. I hadn't heard that before especially not about the real reason organic coffee is better for you. So I'll definitely be keeping that in on my mind when I'm buying coffee. That kind of brings up another question. You mentioned tea is really good for you as well. Is it through the same process or a different mechanism? Yeah, well, so tea has got something else in it. So wonderful thing about mother nature is that she is so resourceful. So any given food's got a lot of different bioactives in it. But the research that's been done so far has really started to cone in on us some of the more um, potent bioactives. So in coffee, it's chlorogenic acid and, and other things, caffeic acid and a few other things. For tea, it's a different set of substances. The best studied polyphenol in tea is a catechin called EGCG. And uh, that's actually uh, present uh, in all kinds of tea. Because uh, tea is a, it's a bush, tea leaves are, are picked. Um, and what's really, really interesting is the uh, EGCG is drawn out of the tea leaf when you actually steep a cup of tea. So if you take loose leaf tea and put it into a cup and pour hot water in it, over time, as those leaves kind of absorb the water, they release their polyphenols. The EGCG goes into water and you drink it. Um, now, here's something. If the, if the tea is too hot and you chug down super hot tea, it increases the risk of esophageal cancer. If you let that tea cool, okay, like below 170 degrees, so, you know, kind of let it, it's, it's, it's warm, but not, it's not blistering hot. Um, uh, drinking tea lowers the risk of esophageal cancer. And why would the 
Why would it raise the risk at high, high temperatures? Because you're really burning the, um, uh, the uh, epithelial lining. Uh, of your esophagus along the way. So this has been studied in humans uh, as well, the sort of temperature differential. If you brew tea with a, um, in a tea bag, what's really interesting is that, uh, you know, what do most people do? They, they pour water, they have their tea bag in it and they just let it sit there. And then later on, they just like, they, they squeegee it out and they throw away the tea bag. But the best way to group brew tea to get the most EGCG out of it is literally to dunk the tea bag over about three minutes. You just it, hold the hold the string, dunk it up and down because that that motion of going up and down, swishing back and forth in, in the tea water extracts out and liberates more of the EGCG. So even the way the technique we use to uh, eat our food, prepare our food, drink our foods can make a diff- bit difference in terms of our health. I am learning so much about my caffeine habits that I definitely will be incorporating. And it really goes to show um, how much more research needs to be done as well in this world of clinical nutrition, how even the small things of how we're preparing our coffee or our food can make a really big difference as well. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you, I'll give you another little uh, tip. Mm -hmm. Many people enjoy putting a little bit of milk or cream in in their tea, particularly if you think about like English having tea in the afternoon, they often actually put milk or cream in their tea. And it might taste good, but here's some chemistry that your listeners should think about. When you actually put uh, uh, dairy uh, into your tea, the, uh, they actually form these microscopic soap bubbles, these micelles, where the uh, hydrophobic uh, uh, section is uh, actually all g- gathers together in a little sphere and the little hydrophilic tails are on the outside. So literally just like the soap bubble um, and the EGCG, the, the polyphenols, the catechins can be trapped inside the soap bubble. Now you're drinking, sipping your tea and these soap bubbles actually um, uh, prevent the EGCG uh, from being absorbed into your gut at the same rate as if you didn't have dairy in it. So you wind up taking, let's say a hundred percent of the polyphenols in tea, when you add dairy, you might actually only absorb 20% or less with dairy and the rest of it just gets flushed through your system, your GI system. Again, very fascinating. Thank you for that. And all of this taken together and me learning so much more already about um, how we eat our foods, the foods we eat. How do you see all this information being integrated into medical education and the medical field at large in years to come? Such a great question. So important. And something that's really close to my heart. Part of my mission is to address this uh, gap. So medical physicians need to learn uh, as much as we they can about nutrition, not only because the food we eat do a lot more than sustain our bioenergetics. You know, I mean, that's the proteins and carbs and fats and you know the the little little Krebs cycle things that we actually had to memorize. Those are the micronutrients, the essential, the minerals, and all that kind of stuff. That's that's really important. But what we're learning about these cell pathways, these cell cell interactions, the hormonal interactions, the milieu with the DNA, all those things that we that medical students learn in other contexts for understanding pathology, for understanding pharmacology, they apply to food now. And so by understanding how nutrition, the food that we eat interconnects with the physiology and pathology that they're already learning 
about drugs and treatments and prescriptions, we'll have a much better way to answer that question that every doctor is asked, you know, usually to their chagrin when the patient says, all right, I know I've got cancer and I know I've got to, you know, get chemotherapy and radiation, but now doc, tell me what I should be eating. All right. And most doctors, like they, they look like they're stunned, like deer in the headlights. They don't know the answer. And that's a very, very uncomfortable place for a physician to be in, right? Here we are given this incredible privilege to have the authority to be able to help heal and to help a patient understand what is going on and to suggest or recommend a treatment. That's why being in medicine is a, uh, is a profession like no other. That privilege you cannot get anywhere else. Now, I can tell you, so when we're suddenly asked by a simple question that it seems like we should know the answer. So what should I have eaten, Doc, for cancer? you know, or for heart disease, you know, like in, in order for, to go beyond, I think every doctor now knows it's, there's an answer in, in, in diet, in food. And it's not just the, well, cut down on your fats. Don't eat so much butter, you know, don't eat so much cake. There's a much more sophisticated answer. So what we need to do is find ways to integrate the molecular nutrition aspects into medical school curriculum, number one. Number two, we need to give medical students the ability to learn from themselves, because unlike uh, anatomy and physiology, where there's a textbook and pretty much the same stuff that William Harvey uh, figured out about blood pressure, not going to be changing, you know, uh, I mean, unless we, you know, start to study have medical schools in, in, in outer space, the reality is it's pretty much the same principles that don't change. But in food is medicine, molecular nutrition, it is changing rapidly. So the most powerful thing I think we can do is to give medical students and young doctors, um, newly minted doctors, the tools so that they can continue learning uh, for themselves. So that could be continuing medical education. That could be a closed community to be able to learn about food as medicine. That's something I'm actually very committed to starting myself. And you know, anyone who's a medical student is interested in that I encourage them to come to my website, uh, Dr. Dr. William Lee, L-I, shoot me a note. Love to get people involved in that kind of mission because I think that it's so important to be able to change the competency of our medical community so that not only can doctors take better care of their patients, but, and here's the, you know, kind of like the underscore, it allows doctors to take better care of themselves as well. Yeah, I completely agree. And we'll definitely be heading to your website to find those further resources. I know you mentioned earlier that when you were in medical school, you felt that you had like one week of nutrition education. And to add to that, I had one optional lecture on nutrition. Um, of course, they kind of mentioned, oh, the diet's important for all these chronic diseases. But there was just this one optional lecture. And I think only 30 students at most had attended. And some people just kind of brush that off and say, oh, well, we have registered dietitians for that. And of course we need our registered dietitians, but a study I found so interesting was that patients are more likely to take nutrition advice when their physician speaks of it as well, because there is so much respect that people give to their physicians. And I think that's not something that I take lightly. And if someone asks me the question, like you said, I won't be able to really give them that evidence-based information. So it was really inspiring to hear. And I as well really hope that we see this change in the field in the years to come. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it has to come. Uh, I mean, I think that for us, uh, the medical community to maintain its credibility, uh, you know, as caregivers, as being able to have the total patient's uh, well-being, 
uh, as part of what we are able to advise on, we have to master uh, food as medicine. And I think that, you know, it's important to distinguish that from dietetics or nutrition, because frankly, that's why we have nutritionists and dietitians. I'm so grateful that we actually have allied uh, uh, healthcare workers that can actually work with us on those specific things. But here, but there's a whole other plane of expertise where doctors can actually contribute that deep dive in understanding that here's an example, a patient with cancer is about to get immunotherapy. It's a checkpoint inhibitor. And so basically you have DNA mismatch and you might have a PD-L1 uh, program, death ligand one, and it's a biomarker. And if all this sounds familiar to somebody who who's in medical school or in practice, you know, this is the bread and butter, right, of modern oncology, because then you can actually give an immunotherapy, like a checkpoint inhibitor, like pembrolizumab, and it allows the patient's um, uh, immune system to recognize, it rips the cloak off of cancer so your, your own immune system can spot the cancer uh, through its DNA microsatellite instability, right? Well, that that's that's what's taught in medical school. That's what's taught in residency. Now, here's what's not taught. Only about 20% of people, patients, respond to uh, checkpoint inhibitors. 20% means that 80% of people don't. Well, there is now new evidence that diet makes the difference between whether you respond and live or don't respond and could die, all right, and uh, given checkpoint inhibitors. So there was a paper recently in the journal Science that showed that the amount of dietary fiber that you eat, five grams of dietary fiber per day, lower, uh, improves your survival by 15%, 15, one, five. Okay, um, what, what's five grams of fiber? It is one medium-sized pear. I think if you actually understood that, you could communicate to a patient how important it is for them to have plant-based diet. And here's something that you could have. It could be like a pear to be able to help tip the odds in your favor. Now, why does that work with immunotherapy? Because the fiber stimulates the gut microbiome and 70% of our immune system that immunotherapy relies on is found in the walls uh, of the gut. Um, uh, so again, this is this is physician level stuff, right? Uh, a few years before, I um, uh, convened a conference called uh, Rethinking Cancer in Paris. It's an international cancer research conference. And we only had one ground rule. You cannot talk about drugs. You cannot talk about chemotherapy. You cannot talk about radiation. You cannot talk about surgery. So you got to talk about everything else. Wow, that's that's quite a challenge, isn't it? What happens when you remove the topic of chemotherapy from a cancer research conference? Well, you get diet, you get exercise, you get sleep, you get stress. And we wanted to make this really, really rigorous. So we um, uh, we held it at the Institute Gustave Roussy, which is one of the most prestigious cancer research institutions in Europe. And one of the topics was uh, that one of the came up was immunotherapy because we want those 20% to be 100%. And, and so there was 200 consecutive cancer patients on it, on these checkpoint inhibitors, immunotherapies, and they were uh, examined to be responders or non-responders, you know, people who did well versus people who didn't do well. And there was a head-to-head comparison of every attribute that could be um, examined. And guess what they found? They found that the difference between a responder versus a non-responder was the gut microbiome and one bacteria. If you had it, 
It's called acromancia mucinophila. If you had that gut bacteria, you would respond to, to immunotherapy. If you didn't have it, you wouldn't respond. Now, how do they know that? They took the acromancia from the people that did respond and they transplanted it into a mouse that was not responding to immunotherapy. By transplanting the human acromancia into the mouse uh, that wasn't responding to immunotherapy, they could watch that. They could watch the mouse's immune system get turned back on and respond to treat the tumor. So we could study these things experimentally. And that's what I'm saying. That is That topic is something that really a physician with the level of science that we're trained to look at should be able to understand. And now you bring it back to, you bring it home to an oncologist, you got a patient who's uh, going to get an immunotherapy in addition to all the other checklist things that we actually have to work out with the patient, right? It's like sitting into a cockpit as a pilot of a jumbo jet. You got to go through this big checklist of stuff. But now we know, I mean, someone like me who knows this, because you can't unlearn this stuff, right? Once you are exposed to it, you cannot unlearn the fact that this makes a difference. Now you want to ask the cancer patient, well, what's your diet like? Are you actually having foods that can actually um, uh, foster acromancia? Like what, doc? Well, acromancia actually is, is, um, thrives in the uh, colonic mucosa in the mucus layer. That's why it's called acromancia mucina, mucin, mucinophila. And the way that you can actually get it to grow naturally is with pomegranate juice or conquered grape juice um, uh, that will actually naturally cause that mucus to be uh, secreted, which then grows uh, the acromancia. And we can measure this now using uh, 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 stool tests. So that's just a little example of uh, a piece of scientific research uh, in the clinical setting that's been translated back to the lab that can go to the practitioner, um, you know, uh, working with the cancer patient, just as one example of many. Of course, again, so enlightening. And thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your work on your book, as well as this research at large. I know that there are tons of either medical students, other healthcare professionals, or even people who are not in the medical field, but just want to bring this information back to their doctor and ask more and more questions. So thank you so, so much for your time. And if you have any last words for the listeners, but I really enjoyed listening to this. So I know they did as well. Well, look, uh, you know, we've had this incredible conversation. I've really enjoyed it as well. But people who want to learn more, I actually uh, give a free masterclass uh, that uh, uh, that's coming up, and they can sign up on my website. It's at www.drdrwilliamlee.com, and uh, sign up for the masterclass because then I go into great depth on different foods and different preparation techniques and little tricks of the trade. And for people who are really, you know, who find that interesting, um, uh, I also developed an online course for people that want to do sort of a real deep dive into the science and the techniques uh, to be able to actually um, take charge of their own life. Because one of my messages really is that, you know, number one, we can trust in science. You know, there's a lot of things that, you know, we question what we can trust, but science is actually the truth. Number two is that the stuff that's coming out of science is relevant and it's exciting and it's a very positive uh, uh, kind of set of developments happening with food as medicine. And the third sort of part of my message, I think is really important. I want people to kind of take home is that literally you and only you can create health for health for yourself. I mean, we learned this during the, during the pandemic, you know, you're not, you don't want to go to the hospital. You don't want to go to the doctor. And then for a long time, there was nothing the medical community could offer. 
And so one of the reasons I created these masterclasses and created this course is because I realized that in that, you know, in those moments where there was a vacuum for the medical community, people could use this knowledge about food as medicine in order to be able to feed themselves and feed their health. And that's something that doesn't go away no matter what, you know, what, what happens uh, to the pandemic. So thank you very much for that opportunity. I hope to uh, you'll get some people to come over to the masterclass. Yeah, of course. All the links will be in the show notes. It's amazing to hear of all these free resources. That's really what I think society needs to start progressing, both medical professionals, but also everyone else's education on nutrition. So thank you again, Dr. Lee. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, guys, me again. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you made it till the end, I know that you are just as interested about this topic as I am. So please DM me either on my Instagram or the podcast Instagram. Tell me what you learned. If you have any guests or any topics you want to hear more about in the future, I would love to hear from you guys. Feel free to subscribe, download the episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and leave a rating or review. It really helps my podcast and helps me grow, so I really appreciate it. Have an amazing week, and I will catch you guys on the next episode. Bye.